0: Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes as well as access to the shorter segments called movable snippets, visit my website sdcompose.com/slash movable dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. I'm joined this week by composer and performer Kurt Bester. Kurt is a multifaceted composer writing for choirs, orchestras, film, television, NFL Monday night football. National Geographic Explorer, the Olympics, and much, much more. His music has been heard and performed literally around the world. Kurt has uh, Kurt was awarded an Emmy for his collaboration with Sam Cardin on the original music for ABC's coverage of the 1988 Winter Olympics. And in 2012, his arranging and producing of Jenny Oaks Baker's album, Wish Upon a Star, earned the two of them a Grammy nomination. Kurt Bester, welcome to Movable Dough.
1: Nice to be here. I appreciate this podcast and I appreciate even more being on it. Well,
0: Thank you so much. So I think I first came to know your music in the early 1990s uh, for your work on LDS projects, such as their albums for the Especially for Youth program. But I know you were making music before that. So I want to reach back more to your beginnings. So I understand that you come from a family tradition of music making and writing. You even had a great uncle that played for Jack Benny. Is that correct?
1: That is true. Uh, my my Don Bester, he uh, not only uh, conducted, played trombone for Jack Benny. He was Jack Benny's conductor, oh. and he wrote. Um, this is I love telling people this. He wrote the jingle for Jello, J E L L O. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. So um, not that that you know. I I mean I think it's cool. Not that it's the greatest piece of music, but a lot of people will remember that. Oh yeah. Uh, and so yeah, on my dad's side of the family, uh, my my great-great-grand, great-great-uncle, as you mentioned, and then my grandfather played trumpet with uh, Tommy Dorsey a little bit back in the day. He also had a nightclub that he would bring in and he would play trumpet along. He taught my father to play trumpet, my father taught me. So most people don't know that I'm a trumpet player. That was kind of my main instrument when I was in junior high and high school and college. But um, all along, um, and my mom, let me not short shrift her. She she was a great piano player, came from a family of Swiss immigrants. Uh, They even had a yodeling club in Wisconsin, although you don't hear that influence much in my music. So yeah, genetically, I was uh, raised by goodly parents, but also, uh, you know, I was always surrounded by music. My dad would listen to uh, everything, mostly jazz uh, and a little more adventurous from jazz like um, uh, Don Ellis. Mm-hmm. Some, some of your, some people may know who he is, uh, kind of a um, d- dealt in multimeters and so forth. And uh, he also listened to The Four Freshmen and Take Six later on, some of the vocal sort of stuff. Sure. My mom listened to um, oh, kind of a little lighter fare, like a lot of Broadway so I was always surrounded by music, uh, not necessarily of the time I was living in, which would have been the Beatles and you know rock and roll, but I was listening to a lot of outside-the-box stuff. And I attribute my parents to m- being able to write in a, a myriad of styles. That's because I listened to lots of stuff like that. My dad was into barbershop singing, too. Not that I'm a huge fan of that, but just understanding how voices work and so forth. Oh, sure. Probably, probably made it so that I write for choirs. But there is a quick uh, musical chronology of my life. So trumpet was
0: your main instrument. Did you start on trumpet or do you start on piano or where did you start? Well, I started on piano,
1: um, like a lot of kids, although these days kids are starting at two and three years old. I started at the advanced age of seven (laughs) and I took, I took to playing piano, but I didn't take to practicing piano. So I think honestly, that's what attributes to my being a composer. I didn't have the stick itiveness and the discipline to play Bach and Beethoven. So I decided I'd play Bester instead. <laughs> uh, and 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 a really cool story. So uh well two stories that uh, that will be good for anybody who's a teacher in the listening audience. Um first of all I had a piano teacher that would see me sit down and play play Bach. You know, I'd do something like that but I'd end up going I'd end up kind of jazzing it up and I would play it that way my teachers now Kurt you've got to play it the way that it was written but then she came up then she could see that I struggled a bit with that she said okay Kurt if you play it the way Bach wrote it you can also play it the way you wrote it and you'll do it that way in the recital so I would play my song two different ways and that gave me kind of validation uh it was okay The coolest story, though, is by my mom. Um, When I was about nine or 10, I sat down practicing the piano, hating every minute of it, you know, just drudgery, terrible fingering. And rather than castigating me, my mom one day came up and said, Kurt, put your music away. I said, yes, I get to quit, like all my (laughs) friends. No, no, you're not going to quit. What I want you to do is to play me a sunrise. And I said, what? What? She goes, you know, you all sit down and you always ad lib stuff at the piano without the music, and I want you to play me something that sounds like a sunrise. So I sat down and I played something, and and I was probably terrible. I I don't remember, but she made me feel really like I was a little composer, and and, and that it was, and and she would have me do that for people when they came to the house. Oh, Kurt, why don't you make up a song about this or that? And I started. Being known for that at a very young age, and that really—before I could even write it down on paper—that really started me out as uh, being a little composer.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Because then you, like, for your recital, you've got Bester right
1: beside Bach.
0: Yeah, and, and I, you know,
1: I, I didn't compare myself equally, but but I knew that it was kind of a cool thing, and not yeah. a lot of. Did it, and I got attention, which, as a young child, that was important. The next step in the chronology was when I was well. I wrote a girl a song for a girl in seventh grade, and you know, I don't know if she still has it. Um, but I bet I, she I, wishes she still does. <laughs> the song was called Pasantino, and that's because that was the name of the sheet music. down at the bottom, it had this Italian name for the sheet. Music <laughs> And I just thought that sounded cool. So I that's what I called it. But that was the first time I ever wrote something down. And I think the flags were kind of backwards and it probably wasn't really great looking, but um, I think she's got a copy. I'll have to find that. Um, but, but I started writing music down. And when I got to high school, I started writing for the jazz band a little bit uh, for the orchestra. I wrote a song called Genesis. I remember that. And I kind of wrote something that sounded like the creation and Um, Not many kids were doing that. So again, it made me feel kind of good about myself. Then when I was a junior in high school, I got a call from the uh, contractor of the Osmonds, the Osmond family. And they were in the middle of their show, the Donny Marie show and other shows they did. And they were recording in Utah, not very far from my high school. And uh, this contractor said, hey, Kurt, you know, our trumpet player got sick. I know you're pretty good for your age and you're a good sight reader. Can you come into the recording studio? It's at one o'clock. I said, oh, I'm in the middle of school. So I skipped school. I went down. I played a (laughs) two-hour session, made $40 an hour, sitting with these great musicians that were studio players. And I just thought, this is it. This is what I want to do, and that really, you know, my mom's inspiration, piano teacher, that contractor, and learning that I could actually make money at it, I was hooked.
0: Yeah, and I I, I heard that there was a story that sort of turned you also toward film music,
1: where you said, "Yeah, I think this it is the direction it, I want to go." You are talking about the Jaws? Yeah, yeah, you know, so. Uh, I don't, I don't know if you can hear my keyboard, but, um, you know, I went to the movie uh, back in the, the 70s when I was in high school and I heard John Williams. I didn't know who he was, but I heard it, his theme. And I thought, hey, I can do that. Two notes. <laughs> no, but I I, heard, I, really appreciated in that movie exactly what film music did. And for whatever reason, I never really thought about film music to that point. But when I saw the movie, heard the music, and of course, it's much more than just those two notes. It's really wonderful use of film music. And I, of course, became like most people. I became a huge John Williams fan. But it also sent me on a trajectory to doing film music at that moment. I said, I'm going to do film music and only film music for the rest of my life. I was very wrong about that, but I did do quite a few movies, so.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. I've, I've never written for film. That's something yeah. I'd, I'd like to experiment with at some point. What challenges are there writing for film as opposed to writing say, a quote unquote standard piece?
1: Well, first of all, um, and maybe the biggest um, challenge is that you're not the most important thing on the block. I mean, you know, normally when you're a composer, you can come up with your own melodies and your own harmony and you like it and you don't care what anybody else says. Um, But when you're writing for a film, you have to be subservient to what's going on, on the screen. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a melody isn't really the best thing to put right there. And maybe it's uh, just a boring little is all it needs. (laughs) And that's kind of hard sometimes. Sometimes you go, Oh, I can do so much more. But the film doesn't really call for it. Now, to exacerbate that now uh, film music has taken a turn. If you go to the movie now, uh, good luck singing any melody that you hear in the movie, because we're kind of in a textural time, Uh um, which is, which is cool. It works, but, um, you know, unless you're, uh, I mean, unless you're like a, uh, Philip Glass fan or you're a John Cage fan or just a textural composer type, um, John Williams right now, he gets to score movies and, 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 and of course, they will have melodies, but that's actually unusual right now. So for me, the biggest challenge is that the film music that I enjoy it has light motifs and has um, you know is 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 kind of uh, like John Williams and, and the older composers. I think we'll come back to it, but right now we're we're sitting in a place where you can't tell the difference between the sound effects and the music, like the new version of Dune. If you've seen it, um, the music is great. But it just functions like this big, powerful, moving, I don't know, sound effect. The, mm. So that's the biggest challenge. And of course, logistically, uh, you, you're at the end of the food chain when you're a film composer. They've spent all the money and on the actors and the, and then they get to you. They never have enough money. And they certainly don't have enough time. They've messed around with their editing so much now that you only have four weeks, if you're lucky, to write 50-70 minutes of music. Wow. Um, but sometimes you have less than that. And that's why you have all these guys. Hans Zimmer has a 20, 30 guys right. that he works with. He just kind of writes a melody and then goes off to the gym and says, Okay, good luck, guys. Stay up 48 <laughs> hours with no sleep. And I have friends that you know it's a great experience, but they burn out really fast. Oh, I'm sure. So I gave you lots of reasons to why it's so challenging. Yeah. But it's, but it's worth the effort. I love doing it. I still uh, score a movie now and then, a lot of documentaries now it seems um, I enjoy doing it, but to be honest it, there's so many rough things and the and the budgets have gone down. Mm. The budgets have gone down because everybody's got samplers in their you know in their computers you, yours truly included and uh, the budgets kind of go, well, we can't afford a full orchestra, but we know that you can kind of mock one up and uh, it's harder to tell the difference sometimes. I mean, you can, I can, probably a lot of your listeners can listen, hear the difference, but Joe Q public, they they can't really hear the difference. Right.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned John Williams as one of your influences, got you into film music. What What other composers were you influenced by?
1: Well, early on, um, I kind of got turned on to uh, Impressionism. So, you know, all the Debussy, Ravel and, and all those guys, I really enjoyed the watercolor colors of that. Uh-huh. And after that, I kind of came on to the 20th century tonal composers. Um, I mean, you—I mean, if you listen to my music, you go, oh, yeah, Kurt uh, Copeland, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard not to love Aaron Copeland Unless you're just a snobby, you know, academician that goes, oh, well, that's like, you know, that's so yesterday. I just think he speaks to the people and I love the way he writes. You know, I, I, I have uh, more than once written Fanfare for the Common and something else, you know, <laughs> uh, and I I love that. So I, I listen to him, you know, I listen to some of the other. American composer at the time just name anybody that studied with Nadia Boulanger and I probably like what they did uh-huh. so that's the 20th century tonal guys and then of course as I've gotten um more into music uh I I I get I like to, to get a little edgier so Penderecki and uh you know Joseph Schwantner who's still alive and composing who uh, but now uh now and I love vocal composers. Um, you know, I like a, a, a small dose of Eric Whitaker, a current composer that's doing really well and he's got groovy hair. Um, but, but you know I, I, I enjoy him, but but you know he's kind of a one- trick pony. I like music out of the uh, vocal vocal music. I love uh, motets, madrigals. Um, and i'm I'm jumping around a bit. Uh, I also love baroque music. Um, hmm. there's part of me that just loves it. But when I talk about it, I'm talking about Vivaldi. I, I just love Vivaldi. Um, the adagios of the Baroque period, I think are some of the most beautiful things ever written. The uh, the gymnastics in some of the um, allegro movements and presto movements uh, are really, I think, clever. They have chords that I can appreciate. Um, and so uh, you'll hear that in some of my music. Maybe later we'll we'll even talk about a song where you can tell that uh, I've been influenced by buy, broke music.
0: Yeah. I have a feeling that might come up a little later. Uh, so in addition to being a fabulous composer, you are also lauded for your concerts. Uh, you've collaborated with people like Donny Osmond, Debbie Gibson, Jenny Oakes Baker, and many, many more. What makes your concert so unique? Why do people latch to them?
1: Well, um, I can only guess because I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the audience, but, I've been told that what people like about it when they hear me in concert is, yeah, they're hearing my music, but they're also hearing um, kind of my banter from the stage. I, When I started out doing concerts, um, I've always been a performer. I mean, probably like many of your listeners, we played in the band or the orchestra, or we sang in the choir. So we, we have performed. But I never was really a solo performer until I came up with a Christmas album back in 1987, And uh, somebody told me, well, you know, in order to sell this album, because back in those days people bought albums. Right. Um, In order to sell the albums, you got to get out and perform, and performances are just, you know, they're cheap. You perform, tickets were cheap, so that you could sell CD or yeah, CDs. My first album was a CD. It was one of the first CDs in Utah, by the way. Uh, It was called Joy Spring. Uh, That was 1987, and then '88 was the Christmas album, but. So I, I booked a hall, uh, happened to be a Brabinell Hall in Salt Lake City, which is like pretty gutsy. It's like, yeah. wow, I, I don't have that many friends and nobody <laughs> knew who I was, but um, we, we, and I say we, it was Sam Card and Mike Dowdle and I together. The first concert was not Kerbester Christmas. It was an heiress Christmas. Uh, that was the name of the company and the name of my first album. Um, and we performed, we, we invited as many people as we could. We even would call radio stations and say, You know, hey, this is Joe down at the body shop. I love that Kurt Bester Christmas. Can you play that? (laughs) And we would just just work the market. And we kind of created this, you know, Kurt Bester Christmas thing and people started coming. So when I did my first show, I didn't have enough music really to fill up a whole show. So I just kind of started this thing of, of describing the song. I know it's something you probably do when you perform, turn around to the audience and say, hey, this next song. But a, a little bit like uh, Leonard Bernstein, you know, uh, very, mm-hmm. very comfortable, not uh, lofty, because, you know, I don't have a doctor degree and all that stuff that makes me speak intelligently. So I just turn to the audience and say, you know, this next song, close your eyes and imagine tobogganing down a hill in Wisconsin, because that's what I wrote the song about. And and I st- would just joke around the- the audience, because i as you could tell, I'm a bit of a talker, and I would I would joke, um, and and pretty soon that got to be part of my thing. It's like come to Kerbester concert, you'll hear the music, but you'll also enjoy hopefully um, my my banter on stage. And I've had people say that that's one of their favorite things is just to be able to hear that. So. I don't know. I'm glad I'm glad they like that and it's been the Christmas concert we had we just so celebrated our 34th year of doing Christmas concerts.
0: Wow, so you're still doing it every year.
1: Every year I do them. That's amazing. Um, do them in a, I used to do it at Brookhaven Hall now I do it in the Eccles Theater which is a beautiful theater here yeah. in Salt Lake. And then I travel around with orchestras uh, uh, once in a while I I've been I've been involved in I well I performed once up at the the, is it the Palladium in Seattle? You're up in that area somewhere, aren't you? Um, anyway, I performed up there and the Schnitzer in, in uh, Oregon. And I performed with the San Francisco Symphony. So I'll bring my sheet music. I'll do a rehearsal with the orchestra in the morning. And then at night time I tell stories and conduct and play piano with the orchestras. Uh, my Christmas show. Haven't done a lot of that just because it gets a little pricey sometimes. but um, But that's been a lot of fun. And, uh, I, outside of Christmas, I do a couple of shows. I do Kurt Bester night at the movies, and I've had a chance to perform that with the, uh, Liverpool Philharmonic with, uh, Utah symphony, uh, the Cape Cod Philharmonic. And that's where I stand up in the, in front of the audience and, Basically, take them from the beginning of film music, Charlie Chaplin. I played the piano uh-huh. all the way up to John Williams and beyond. We do a superhero medley. Oh wow! And it's a and we drop a screen and we get to show clips from the movie. It's a hard one to do just because it's very logistically tough, but people sure. really really enjoy it. So there you go. That's uh, that's me and performing. <laughs> all right.
0: Well, I would be remiss today if I did not ask you about Prayer of the Children. I'm sure many of my listeners have heard this piece, and I'm sure many have performed it. Uh, I'm not sure how many have heard the story, and I'm sure this could be a a podcast all on its own, just talking about this one piece. Uh, But could you tell us briefly about how and why you wrote this piece?
1: I will will try to be as brief as possible. Um, So I lived in the former country of Yugoslavia, and while I was there, it was Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, just a group of states they were they you know they had their own personalities but they were like america you know idaho utah whatever and um, after the after i left the war broke out and i was really struggling with how to deal with that because i love the people of serbia i love the croatians now they hated each other the bosnians were being put in camps and ethnic cleansed and i i just struggled with that like most musicians we're sensitive to those sort of things and so one day I had a piece of gear. I bought this vocorder and some of your listeners may know what that is. It's basically you sing into a microphone, play MIDI notes, and it splits your voice into parts.
0: Yeah. I've seen videos of you doing this. It's
1: amazing to watch. It's pretty cool. And, uh, so I bought this piece of equipment and I just started messing around with it. So I was singing into the microphone going da, ya, da, 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 like a little Celtic thing. And then CNN was on in the other room and I was hearing the war and, and it was getting me down. So I just came up with this little concept that can you hear, can you hear the children? And and And, and the reason I went to children is because children don't, care who wins wars they don't they don't even it doesn't even resonate with them why we're fighting a war for money for power um and they just want mom and dad to be there they just want a fun place to play they want their friends and and they want to have a a quiet place to sleep and war takes much of that away from them so i i I just thought of this idea can you hear the prayer of the children then i painted the picture on bended knee in the shadow of an unknown room of empty eyes with no more tears to cry, turning heavenward toward the light. And I won't go through the whole lyrics, but it, it basically was just painting a picture of children, the victims of war. And then the next verse, it was, can you feel? So now I'm going with another, uh, another um, you know, uh, can you hear, can you feel, and the hearts of the children. And so I wrote the song and we wrote pretty, it went pretty quick. It was an acapella tune because I had my little vocal machine. I wrote the song and then put it away. Didn't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a singer per se. And um, one time I was performing for a private company here in Utah and I didn't have enough music. And so I just programmed that song. And I just thought, I'm going to do this song, you know? And so I did. And the, the audience reaction was was surprising. It was like at the end of the song when I I just end on a unison G mm-hmm and then i paused you know and you know that as a conductor you know how you know you don't let your baton down you just let it sit there and then i i went like this and then the audience applauded but it was noticeable how much silence there was which was louder than the applause to be honest it was very cool so la- the the, the, la- the end of the story is we we're uh, sam and i were doing an album called the innovators which was kind of a popular we've put out with word perfect uh, old company that you probably don't even know what it is a so word um, oh, yeah anyway it was a <laughs> software uh, program and uh, done in utah that was very popular and they released an album called innovators and we decided to put prayer of the children on that album and it's the last song and um i don't know it, it, it just took off the song's taken off uh thanks to a, a lady up in so in your area or mm-hmm. close to where you uh I can never say the word pew pew, Pew up that that I can never say it. But there's a lady (laughs) there named Andrea Klaus and she had heard the song on that album and wanted to know if she could do an SSA an arrangement of it. And I said, sure. And so we kind of worked together on it and she started singing it up there. And then it spread to a guy named Weston Noble, who's uh known in the Midwest. Um, I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, if he is, no, quite, he died a couple of years ago, uh, too bad. Uh, he was a big champion of yeah. my song and would sing it with all state choirs. Well, and I told you this would be short, but it's worth saying the song kind of had a life of its own. And it was sung at uh, 2002 after nine 11 or 2001, nine 11 happened. And it started to be sung at, um, commemorations of that. It still is every year by the, um, uh, uh, Harlem boys, boys choir, then it was sung by the um, King Singers did a version. Um, it's been sung now by Three Dog Knight. Um, So the the song goes around, and of course, it's sung by choirs. Today, and we're recording this during the Ukrainian um, situation, the song is being sung like crazy. In fact, just now, literally as we speak, I just translated the last line into Ukrainian mm. so that people can sing the song because everybody's singing it again. It's becoming... Right unfortunately, uh, applicable. And the last line, I just, just before we went on, um, I, I translated because people have been asking, how do you say the last line in Ukrainian? So anyway, that's, uh, it, 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 when I die, it'll probably be what I'm known for, even <laughs> though I like to think I've done many other things, but it, it, I'm, I'm grateful that it's, that it's had an effect on people.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, Kurt, I could literally talk to you all day. You have such a fascinating career uh, we are going to take a break here in just a moment uh, before we start listening to some of your music. Uh, but I, I'm a teacher myself, and I, I teach middle school choir. I ask my students what they would ask a composer if they had a chance. Uh, would you mind answering one of their questions? Oh,
1: abso- absolutely. That'd be great.
0: Okay. So my student, Brooklyn, asks, what do you do when you have writer's block?
1: When I have writer's bro- block, Brooklyn, uh, I, I go on a walk. I go play squash, which is like racquetball. I do something besides music. I don't sit there and stare at the keyboard or stare at the music. I, I get away from it. And inevitably that that kind of gets my mind out of that block. To be honest, I don't have I don't have that very often because I have deadlines that don't permit me to have writers block. And so the fear of a deadline also drives me. So, (laughs) but I would say, you know, if you're having a hard time with your piano practicing or something or writing um, get away from it, just do something else. And you'll, you'll be amazed or go to sleep. Don't stay up all night, go to sleep, get up in the morning and your brain will be refreshed. And usually that, that kicks me out of it.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here and then we're going to listen to some of Kurt's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Kurt Bester. So I'd like to start today with the Olympic flag segment that you sent me. So this is from the 2002 Winter Olympics held in Salt Lake City. So this was performed during the closing ceremonies, correct?
1: That is correct.
0: So how does it change your working process when you know that your piece will be heard immediately on a world stage?
1: Well, just knowing that, 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 that that the Olympics represents uh, not only for athletes, but anybody involved in the production, the actual highest that's, that's about as high as you can go. And um, knowing that John Williams has been a part of that and and other great composers, I I felt the pressure to put out my best work. And so Sam Cardin and I uh, collaborated on this song that we're going to hear and, and I just you know, I just push myself. I push myself like an athlete would to reach the highest level of my composition, drawing from everything that I knew about different cultures. This song you're going to hear, um, you're going to hear not only kind of a John Williams-esque orchestral feel, you're going to hear some instruments that suggest other cultures in the drums and so forth. And uh, I, I and it had to go for 10 minutes. It's a long song. I'm not sure if, if you'll have time to play it all. You may want to you know you may want to play the whole thing um or or not but you'll very quickly hear what it, it, it this is as the musician uh, sorry as the athletes walked in i was conducting live this song and i had my back to the athletes i was conducting in frigid cold um weather the song and i also had a camera and i was taking pictures behind me as i was conducting <laughs> Uh, because I just didn't want to forget the moment. So I'm very proud of this work. And Sam and I, I think, uh, I think we got a gold medal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I have to say, this is, the, this is the first music from Olympics that I have played on my program, and I'm super excited. So we're going to listen here to this Olympic flag segment. We're going to turn next to come to my garden set for choir and orchestra and i have to say this is from one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite musicals the secret garden um i was pleased as the piece began to hear the the robin chirping in the flute uh so was this part of it a set of musical theater arrangements or a, a one-off that you did for for the tabernacle it, choir it or? was
1: part of an album that they were um they were doing called broadway and Okay. They, they had got me and along with a few other composers, Mac Wilberg. i not sure if Sam Carden did anything, but different composers that, that, that are familiar with the Warm Tabernacle Choir. Um, they, they hired us to write arrangements. So they hired me to do the garden piece. And I'm just like you. I love the story of secret garden. In fact, um, I have done an original ballet based on oh, really, secret. I could have put that down as something to listen to today, but since it's an hour long, I thought that might be a bit much, but um I love the story. So when I usually when I arrange, I tend to kind of close my eyes and paint a picture. And I even though uh, it's one of the longest uh, intros that the tabernacle choir ever does, they always do it. And they usually put when they perform it uh, on their program, they usually put really gorgeous pictures Uh, garden pictures, so forth. And yes, um, you know, it sounds a little bit like Respighi's Pines of Rome or something at the beginning, but I don't care. It's about a garden. And the fun thing about this song was I wanted to grow the garden musically. So we started Mm -hmm. with garden sounds, but then towards the end, the garden just blooms into this huge ending. And uh, that's what I enjoy. I made my musical garden bloom.
0: That is awesome. Um I'm, So I I love this orchestration, and I I hope that I can someday do this with my group up here. Is the music available out there? It it is available.
1: I know a guy who wrote it who could probably get (laughs) you. Thank you for uh, having me on his podcast. So yeah, just get in touch with me. I've got the orchestra and the choir parts.
0: Sounds fabulous. All right, we're going to listen to the Tabernacle Choir sing, Come to my garden. Turn next to From Every Poor. So, this is a brand new piece written for an album coming out with violinist extraordinaire Jenny Oakes Baker. So, I'd love you to tell me about this new album and the collaboration between the two of you.
1: So, Jenny and I have collaborated for, oh man, uh, more than 25 years, literally since she was a teenager and played with in my studio a couple of times. And then she went off to school, came back an even better violinist. I started arranging for her with a cadre of other composers and then finally the other composers just went away and i kind of became her sole um arranger it seems and i, I don't hold her to that but i'm glad that it's the case so we've done uh, more than 10 albums together and um this uh this particular song is a world premiere from an album called the redeemer and it uh it charts the um the life of Jesus Christ from um, based on the beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from the pre-existence that they believe in um, all the way through some of his life and goes then to the passion uh, that that people of of many faiths know and then finally into a resurrection. And uh, it's 10 songs that that go through in a kind of a cinematic way and, and capture that. The song that I've chosen to, to premiere is one of my favorites. It's an original song. Some of the songs are based on hymn melodies that people Mm. might know from uh, just basic Christian um, culture, but this song is an original song and the song without getting too much into the weeds. um, The song, it paints a picture of Jesus Christ praying in the garden at Gethsemane and, um, uh, some, So I'll, I'll put down some liner notes someday and people can read more about it because I did it. There's a lot I went into why I wrote the way I did. There mm-hmm. were three sections of the song, for example, based on the three times he prayed, the last time God sent a comforter. You'll hear all that in this arrangement. So the girl that is playing the cello on this happens to be Jenny Oaks um daughter i was uh, wondering about that. daughter sarah who is 16 maybe 17 now she is going to be a force in the cello world she's an amazing cello player already even though she doesn't practice as much as she should but anyway (laughs) um this is called from every poor and it's uh it's an original song off of uh um the redeemer
0: so when you're not using text and you want to you want to convey these musical ideas, you know, Jesus praying in the garden, what sort of, what sort of musical elements do you turn to?
1: Well, you know, first of all, as a composer, and, and I don't think about this, I don't think composers do, but we, we, when we study our music, we know when you when you do big skips, these big skips represent outpouring of emotion. And there are certain uh, chords and dissonances that resolve into consonances—it's you know not just at the end of a song, but uh, you know when you've got that suspension and release, those kind of things are what what we in viscerally use as composers to make you feel what we want you to feel. And I don't think about it when I do it; I just write, and it just works and just comes out. Um, certain combinations of of instruments certain chords and the way chords resolve but on this one I started with the melody and um, I don't know what style you would call this it harkens a little bit to a a romantic uh, period but also 20th century tonal um, and film music as well Uh, but that's that's kind of what I go to I don't try to tell you exactly what to think I just want to basically get the listener to just feel something in the zone if I tell you the story then you're really going to connect But sometimes I like to just say, here's the song, feel what you want to feel. And it's usually they feel what I want them to feel.
0: All right. Well, we're going to listen now to From Every Poor from the album Redeemer, uh, played here by Jenny Oaks Baker and her daughter, Sarah. All right, our last piece today, Il Prete Rosso, the Red Priest. Uh, so this is from your album Outside the Lines. So I yeah. listened through most of the album the other day, uh, and it seems to be revisiting or reimagining uh, Baroque works, themes, and ideas. Uh, I assume this piece, Il Prete Rosso, is in reference to Vivaldi. I don't the know if I'm on priest. the right track here. <laughs> Can you tell me about uh, you what you are we're correct? Hearing?
1: Well, like I, I love, I love Vivaldi. Um, I like the fact that I feel a bit of a kinship oh, with, geez. sorry, you I'm, I'm, you're hearing Siri. <laughs> Siri sometimes just decides to answer questions. Anyway, your, your <laughs> listeners are going to kick out of that. Um, no, I, I always felt a kinship with him because he wrote an incredible amount of music. Um, and he, that was kind of his job working with all the, the girls at that, that school or whatever it was. And um, he would just write and write and write. And he put it I mean, I haven't listened to all of his pieces and I've been on this earth a long time so I, I kind of feel a kinship plus I just like how it makes me feel when I hear that those kind of string figures that he does and the way that the chords move so when I did my album um, it's called Outside the Lines because I can't I don't know what style my music is half the time I, I, and people go oh where should we put this in the record store back in the day we had record stores where should we categorize you what what style of musician are you and I I don't know. I think in this case, maybe (laughs) I'm kind of jazzical, you know, Um, it's, I, I, I just take jazz that I love. I take a little bit of the classical that I love and I just mix it up and it comes out bester, I guess. Um, And that's what the album is. It's like, you know what? I'm outside the lines. I, 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 you can't make me a new age guy. You can't make me a classical guy. I just, I do what I do.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I love about listening to your music is it just covers such a wide range of styles and genres. And it, it just never seems to be the same thing twice, which I well, love. Well, and it
1: frustrates my my record company at times. It's like, you need to do more of this. Write another prayer <laughs> of the children. And I just get bored. And so, you know, if you follow me at all in my career, you're going to hear a lot of different sides of who I am.
0: So in Il Prete Rosso, are we hearing... A snippets from Vivaldi himself or things written like Vivaldi
1: it would be the latter um I just you know if you just go through that Mm -hmm. that's nothing specifically Vivaldi but definitely definitely in the style that little that little figure and um and then the, the jazz side might be attributed to somebody like Dave Gruson that I grew up listening to love his stuff um you know um I always tell young young Kids who are studying music, listen to music. If you want to be a composer, listen to other people's music. Put it in your data bank, and then someday it'll come out. At first, when you start composing, you sound like you're ripping people off. But later on, you'll start developing your own style, and uh, that's a good feeling. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, we're going to now listen to Il Prete Rosso uh, from the album Outside the Lines, performed here by Kurt Bester and the Collective. All right. well, Kurt, what are you working on now that you could tell us about?
1: Oh man, well, having just finished that, that album for Jenny, that which took the, I started and I finished it in a month, um, I had to take a little time off intellectually uh, not on purpose, but a guy. I just couldn't write anything for about a week. But um, I'm doing some arranging right now, uh, an arrangement for um, Andrea Bocelli. I'm doing something for a show for him. He wants to do this tango with a violinist. And so I'm working on that right now. It's an arrangement. Um, I'm working on music for a ballroom dance team based. Oh God, I guess I can't tell you because it's supposed to be a surprise. It's okay. based on fame, famous <laughs> melodies from a famous Broadway show I have to put together in in a five dance medley. So tangos and waltzes and, and quick steps and foxtrots. Um, it's something I've done before. Uh, I enjoy doing it. And, uh, it's always fun to see someone dance to music. So I'm working on that. I'm doing some harp arrangements right now. A family hired me to do arrangements for three harps. Wow. uh, There's going to be a whole lot of harp happening here. And, uh, I don't know. Um, other than that, I will compose for food. So anybody, <laughs> anybody listening needs something, um, um, I will. I'll, I can write anything, um, given enough food and or money. All
0: right. Well, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, where are you located online? Where can we find you?
1: Well, the traditional, you know, KurtBester.com website, although I haven't really updated that for a while. So just Facebook Instagram. I'm trying to do TikTok, although my daughter thinks it's cringy that I'm on TikTok. Uh, just Google me and you'll find all kinds of stuff. Uh, fact and fiction.
0: Sounds great. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you are enjoying today's episode, you should let your friends and neighbors know about how much you love movable, movable dough. Uh, you can do this in one of two ways. First, share this episode with a friend. Let them know about Kurt Bester's music. It doesn't take much more than a click to share a podcast with someone that you think might find it interesting. Second, you can visit the Movable Dough merch store and get the Movable Dough logo on a t-shirt, mug, sticker, or pretty much anything else you'd like. Visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough and click on the merch link. Well, Kurt Bester, it has been an extreme joy to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. And thank you. My guest today was composer Kurt Bester. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.